If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. Hello. Okay, that's John. He gets a little bit excited. By the way, if you've never, ever listened to this podcast before, uh, I'm David. I'm John. My objective is to try and make economics as comprehensible and as relatable as possible. My objective is to grill him. And John, yeah, and John is basically the acid test. If he understands it... Anyone understands it. How are you, Ed? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right, son. I'm Good all to right. see you. Good to see you. Do you know what we're going to talk about this week? Come Disruption, on. right? It's something you hear all the time about how society is changing, how business is changing, how we all react to it. And the idea is that there are disruptors who basically disrupt old business models. And then there are people who are profoundly badly affected by this because they can't get their act together to figure out the new world. This is not new at all. Obviously, this, back to, this is Schumpeter. Schumpeter, it yes. Is, yeah, yeah, we come back to Schumpeter all the time, we do because, which is good. Because he's very, very much, what Schumpeter always said was that the essential fact of the capitalist society, not like an observation or an addition or a complementary, but the fact is that business models change all the time. Now, this week, we're going to talk about what the music industry, dear yeah, to your heart, indeed. can tell us about the rest of the world. You've worked in the music industry for years. You know all about it. Lucy, my daughter, is involved now in the music industry. And the music industry was disrupted 10, 15 years ago before anybody else. But you might even think it was disrupted even before that. Oh, it was disrupted on numerous occasions all the way through, going back to... Les Paul. You know the Les Paul guitar? I do. Uh, Les Paul was a, a brilliant inventor. So he invented the Les Paul guitar, but he also invented multi-track recording, which was the game changer. And what's interesting about technology and music is that technology, in my view, has changed the course of music several times in the last in 50, your career, yeah, well, in the last 50, 60 years, I'm not quite that old, but you know, from he's stuff, only by the way, he's only a spring chicken, he's only a spring chicken, he's just doing leaving, sir. Which have failed, 
Still did. But, I did it twice. Yeah. And I always say, I, lo- I like the leaving cert so much, I, I did it twice. <laughs> but like from, from stuff like multi-track recording, which means you could have loads of different instruments on different tracks. You could overdub, you could do all that kind of stuff. And then you could manipulate it afterwards and mix. That's when the mix So when was that? That was the 60s or 70s? Yeah, that was kind of late 50s, early 60s. And then, you know, you had your four track, your eight track, and then it started, you know. Don't get all Phil Spector on me now. Oh yeah, no, but Phil Spector kind of, see, he was in the mono days, but actually the, the guy who really got to grips with that was George Martin and the Beatles. Did so, they use more tracks? Oh, yeah, no, they, they started, you, that's when the studio came into being. Like, walking into a multi-track studio meant that you you could use the studio almost so, as, as an instrument in itself. So explain to me, like, when Lennon and McCartney walked in with George Martin, let's say, and mm. they had, let's say, like a day in the life. Yeah. Because that seems to me a very complicated song. Yeah, it was. Right? Yeah. And Lennon and McCartney, so they had two or three different songs going on at the same time. And they kind of fused them all together. Was it Martin that had all the orchestral stuff at the back? And Yeah, but it also, see, just to simplify it and, and not to go on By too much By the way, we are it. going to get into an economics podcast in two but seconds. The likes of Phil Spector had everyone in the room and he'd mic'd everything up and it came through the board and then it went down onto tape, onto mono tape. So, By the way, you should see, he's really excited now. <laughs> But then when the multi-track came in, it allowed people like George Martin and uh, the Beach Boys and all the rest to use it as an instrument. So you could record the basic track, which might be drums and bass and maybe a guitar or maybe a guide vocal. And then you could bring in orchestras and add another guitar part or another keyboard part or what. And then after that, then you could mix it all together and you end up with a record. So that was a big game changer. But the big game changer when I was working in studios was the onslaught of digital. Now, that was kind of building all the way through the 80s. And then towards the end of the 80s, things went from analog, which is basically your oxidized tape, to digital. As well as that, then you also had the development of samplers and sequencers and that kind of stuff. And this was, as a phrase that JM might use, it was the democratization of music and recording. Yep. So it essentially allowed non-musicians or non-traditional musicians, how we say, to sample little bits from different records, little beats, loops, all that kind of stuff and create something new in their bedroom. So no, you didn't have to go to a studio. So, yeah, really, DIY. Yeah. So studios are really expensive. You know, back in the day, they were a grand 1500 a day. That was a huge amount in the late yeah, 80s. Absolutely. That was the explosion of dance music because it allowed people to knock stuff out. But I, I think throughout the whole evolution of music, of modern music, yep. technology was the spark of many of the new styles. Yeah. You know, you talked before about the likes of Donna Summer, I Feel Love. Yes. And that was Giorgio Moroder. You tell a great story on that. And, you know, how that was, was that 1977? And that came out of disco, but sparked a whole techno scene. Yeah, it did. All the way through the 80s. You know, that was yet another great example. But what is interesting now is that technology is not only changing the sound of music, but it's now changing 
how we listen to music, how we sell music, how we buy music, and how we distribute music. And that's the new game? And that is the new game. Okay. What we're going to do in two seconds is we're going to talk to Will Page, former chief economist of Spotify, about how these trends in music are going to affect us all. John, I'm looking at this new book called Tarzan Economics by Will Page, the former chief economist of Spotify, called Eight Principles for Pivoting Through Disruption. Mm. Now, what he's saying, now Tarzan Economics, is a lovely image, right? The image of Tarzan, he's, Tarzan's on one vine swinging through the jungle, right? <laughs> yeah. And then he grabs another vine yeah. and he swings through. And the idea is, how do you let go of the vine the old vine and grab the new vine. That's the whole idea of how do you avoid being caught in disruption. But I was just thinking- It's all about, down to timing. It's that timing and knowing where you're going. Yeah. Knowing where you're yeah. going. And this new book, Tarzan Economics by Will Page, is really fascinating because what he, he, he's an economist who joined the music industry. And he then went on to be the chief economist of Spotify. And Spotify, as we know, has changed the music industry. Yeah. He's got amazing things to say not just about the music industry, but about how the music industry is the template for so many other industries, the law, banking, advertising, architecture, anything that used to be organized in one way in the old days is yeah. now going to be organized in another way and people involved are going to have to change. So it's fascinating stuff. Let's go to Edinburgh and talk to Will Page. Will Page, former chief economist of Spotify. You've written a really fantastic book called Tarzan Economics. And I think it's fascinating for people to listen to your analysis about the music industry. That I you do. were a an economist trying desperately to be a lead singer or rock and roll journalist. <laughs> well, if I hop, skip and jump to the final words of the book, it says, don't wait for your job description, create your job description. And for me, the strange thing was, if I go back to 2006, the music industry was staring into the abyss. CD sales were cratering, downloads were barely noticeable, and piracy was rampant. And nobody could see a solution. But in the industry, all you had was lawyers. You didn't have one single economist. And the bugbear for me was, could an economist in this business think about the problem differently? And that was the lesson here of just, you know, I created my job description and sold it in. I believe this business needs economics. And I want to be the first person to deliver it. And that's where the story kind of begins. Well, listen, let's say the story, your story begins, obviously in Castle Bar, we're going to go back there. But no, but your story <laughs> okay. begins, you're, 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 you're an economist, you get into the music business, but you get into the music business at a time when the music business is being destroyed. It's the yeah. entire cannibalized, it's business model. And what you're saying in the book is that, and this is where I want to go before we go back to the music industry, what you're saying in the book is that what happened in the music industry is going to happen or is happening in many industries, and we might not even be aware of that. So explain what happened yeah. and what is happening. Great. So um, if we go back to June 1999, the world woke up to something called Napster. What was Napster? It was a file-sharing P2P network that basically meant if your internet connection was fast enough at the time, and you remember internet speeds at that time weren't great, but if you could get onto that network, you could download any song you wanted. Okay? So all of a sudden, music becomes free. That's a consumer's perspective. Yeah. The legal angle is very interesting because if we think about copyright, which is what the music business is built on. What does copyright stand for? It stands for the right to control copying. What yes, happens exactly. to copyright? When you lose that ability to control copying, becomes the interesting question. So 
Napster in America, for Europeans, Winamp was a more popular service. You know, we turned into the millennium looking at a business built on copyright that has lost the right to control copying. We got hit with our Napster moment, which upended the business. Now, to the purpose of the book, my passion, as with yours, is teaching economics. And I hope uh, we get to kill economics this year. I hope we can run it again and I can get onto that stage. I also do stand-up comedy, so I'm going to do the double act. No, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Fantastic. Two for the um, price of one. Is it two for the price of one gig? <laughs> Who doesn't like that? Go on. But so we think about that 20 year journey. What I wanted to do with the book was music's got a head start here. Firstly, we spent the first 10 years fighting the problem. The lawyers governed the solution, which was to sue the consumer, sue the websites, sue the ISP providers. Litigation would solve this problem. People would stop stealing music and going back to trying to open CDs and breaking their fingernails in the process. Everybody else knew that wasn't going to happen. In the second 10 years, we embraced the solution. And this is where the term Tarzan economics came in. We let go of the old vine of ownership because that was dying anyway. And we reached out to the new vine of access or streaming. And we overcame our fear of the unknown. And this is the interesting thing. If I, if I go back to meeting Daniel Ek, and I'll age my Spotify years. I first met Daniel Ek when he had hair. That's how you date your Spotify Daniel, years. Daniel Ek is who now? Who's, who, who's he? Okay, so Daniel Ek is the founder of Spotify. Okay, uh, great. Also in the news today, quite interestingly, because he's offered on Twitter to buy Arsenal Football Club. Quite interesting. Really? So he's buying <laughs> really? he's buying two desperate assets initially. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I met him and we discussed the problem, and it's, it's well documented this, it's how do you look at the problem of piracy, of theft, stealing? Kids are stealing these songs. Music consumption wasn't the problem. Music monetization was. And just like you can bring a horse to water and hope those kids go back to buying CDs and downloads, sometimes you've got to bring water to the horse and build something that's better than stealing and watch them come across. And that's the journey. 10 years fighting the problem, the second 10 years embracing the problem. And now music has got a recovery, which is the envy of everyone else. So with the book, I try and take this first to suffer, first to recover journey and apply it to everyone else. COVID's accelerated change. We all know a lot of that change is going to stick when we get back to normal. So everybody is staring at Napster moments. Look at lawyers, you know, illegal solutions, law without lawyers. People are signing AI contracts today. Look at journalism, look at bankers, look at accountants. It permeates everywhere in society that we're all staring at an Napster moment. And so what you're saying, every business, I want to come back to your music in a second, because it's not just close to my heart, because John, my partner in crime here, is a sound engineer, but also my daughter is a singer. And I want to, uh-huh. I'm going to tell you her story in a second, uh, because there's a part of me resents income that should be going to artists going to software engineers. That's a big, big part of me. Doesn't like this, right? Yeah, we'll uh, take care of that one. And, and it is something because what I worry about, I want to talk to you about bankers and lawyers and all that in a sec. Sure. What, what I worry about is the essential reward that comes from the creative effort of writing a song, which is something a software engineer cannot do. And I have a lot of friends of mine because I ended up getting into live performance economics and doing all sorts of things yeah. I should never have done, right? I have a lot of friends of mine who are stand-up comedians, who are performers, who are musicians, who, mm-hmm. are, who are involved in the beautiful, tactile, touchy business of human contact and creating beautiful things like music. And where did they stand in all this? So... What I was really passionate about was Spotify's story as from its inception. And it's worth stating from the outset, for the first six years of my time in the music business, I was on that side of the fence. Yeah. I was the chief economist of the Performing Rights Society. 
uh, which represents songwriters and publishers across the UK and mainly Ireland as well. A lot of the Irish songwriters joined PRS too. I also worked with Imro across across the border too. Is what I, I was fascinated with is Spotify, like a hare and a tortoise, Spotify believed in licensing first, launching second. Now, people have short memories. Digital music wars are littered with history of services which launched first and licensed second and never scaled. If you think about MySpace music, you know, remember what happened to yep. MySpace? Yep. Now we call it My Empty Space because no one's there. Exactly. So there's a hundreds of those companies, but Spotify went slow and got the licensing in place to then be, proceed to launch. Launching in the UK in 2009, launching in Ireland a few years after that. Now, then you get the perception of where's the value. And I'll give you a very quick numerical yeah. example here of how this is going to work. So let's say that David McWilliams' daughter's song is performed in the BBC Radio 2 breakfast show over here in the UK, the highest by, earning... By Annie Mac or someone like that, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so that's the highest earning place a song could be played. Her song will gross around about £150 to both the songwriter and the artist combined. A lot of money for one play in a radio show. Now, how many people listen to that radio show? About eight and a half million. Then she gets a song played on Spotify and she gets half a penny per stream and she thinks, fuck off, I'm getting £150 for a radio play and half a penny per stream for a Spotify play. What I ask you and your listeners to do is the quick bit of arithmetic. Take the £150, divide it by eight and a half million listeners and you'll get the value of the per stream. And that is a fraction of a fraction of half a penny per stream that you would have seen on Spotify. Think of it as broadcast, one to many, versus narrowcast, many one to ones. Yeah. Alternatively, take the half penny per stream you get on Spotify and multiply it by eight and a half million. And if my math serves me correctly, you'll get forty thousand pounds, far more than the hundred and fifty yeah. you would have got yeah. on radio. Okay. Where does all this go? We call it the hierarchy of exploitation. In copyright law and in copyright economics, the more you interact with the content, the more you pay. That's why Spotify pays more than radio. That's why radio pays less than Spotify because of the level of interactivity. And that's the basis which holds this business model together. So yes, there is confusion, fear, shock, astonishment at the payouts and the understanding of the model. There is some type of economic rationale but to explain all this. I just tell you now, and we'll, we'll, we'll get off uh, Lucy, my daughter. She So she recorded a track last year that has had over 3 million downloads on Spotify, uh-huh. which is quite amazing for a first song. And lots of people were saying, you know, in the old days, you would have made X hundreds of thousands, right? And now you're making pennies, right? Or hundreds or maybe a few thousand quid. Explain that to me again. You know, like in the old days, you would have done this and now you're doing that. Because again, my concern is before we, is the creator, the, or, the mm. originator, the person who sits down in front of the piano or with their guitar or whatever and creates something out of nothing. Okay, so... Uh, I'll preface my answer here by saying many of your readers read The Economist, and mm-hmm. I'm actually in The Economist this week talking about this very topic with regards to Oscars and Grammys. But let's work through, in the old days, you would have sold, let's say your, your daughter would have sold perhaps 10,000 CDs. Yeah. And that might have produced, let's say, for simplicity's sake, a pound to the artist and a pound to the songwriter. So that 10,000 sales has produced 20,000 in revenue up front. Yeah. But the consumption happens afterwards. Today, we don't do upfront transactions anymore. We monetize downstream consumption. So not only will she see less money upfront, but more money over time as it grows, but also if you think about the CD model, it's quite interesting as she releases content, it all happens in the first month. You have PR, marketing. Yeah, yeah, you've got your campaign and then it stops. 
Right, with streaming, now we're monetizing a different thing called consumption. It's very hard to get your head into this, which grows over time. You might do more business in the second 18 months than you did in the first. 18 months being where we apply this weird rule, this out-of-date rule called catalog. So it's very hard for artists, industry executives to understand that we've given up on the transactional model, which is front-loaded and decays, and adopted a, a back-ended downstream model, which grows. That's, that's a tricky that's, yeah. No, that is, that is, I, I see what you mean. And it is, it's hard to get your head around, not least because all of us, particularly if you're writing books or whatever, you, you believe in the launch, the launch of the thing, you know, and that's where you create yeah. the hype and the heat and everything. Wait, I, can I give you just one other very quick one on there too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For your daughter and for other artists potentially listening as this podcast goes out, which is, there's the other question there, and you talk about this in macroeconomics a lot, trickle-down economics. Yeah. All this money is getting chopped out. How much does your daughter actually see? And when does she actually see it? When does she look at a bank statement and say, oh, there's some money from Spotify or from Apple Music or from Amazon? And what you've also seen is, firstly, more money in the business. But secondly, and this is really important, David, more mouths to feed. And everyone on your show is capable of doing arithmetic here. We've got more revenues from mm-hmm. music. It's a success story. Books like Tarzan Economics document it. But really important, we've got way more artists and songwriters to pay from that success. So when you divide one by the other, mm-hmm. you get a kind of shrinkage in the actual payments. That's a positive problem. We shouldn't be worried about more artists and more songwriters than ever before. In Britain, at least, the artist and songwriter population is more than doubled in 10 years. More than doubled. Find me another area of labor market stats where the yeah. population of employees is right now. This is important. What a lot of artists are doing is they're doing it themselves and seeing more of that money filter through. So instead of me giving you a check. And you giving your daughter, let's say you're the record label here, 20% of that check as a royalty. And remember, that's how you pay back in advance. So if you have a, a 20% royalty and a hundred thousand pounds investment in your daughter, she has to create half a million pounds before the debt's paid back. Instead of that, they use DIY platforms like DistroKid, TuneCore, EMU Bands. And that during COVID, David. And I mean, this is a quirk during COVID that has exploded. Two data points. Last year, major labels released 1.2 million songs. That's a lot of fucking music. That is a lot of music. That is a lot of music. DIY artists doing it themselves released 9.5 million. Wow. Okay. That's a ratio of eight to one of artists doing it themselves as opposed to having labels do it for them. And I want the audience to think about that as a microcosm for what's going to happen elsewhere. COVID has accelerated change. We're all asking now how much of that change sticks. An empowerment of individuals to make as opposed to buy, to do it themselves as opposed to seek control to intermediaries, I think is a universal theme that we're going to see play out across society. Well, let's move on to the idea of the Tarzan. Just so I explain to people, if you Mm. imagine Tarzan himself, right, he's grabbing one vine, He's swinging over and then he's grabbing another vine. And the whole idea of Tarzan economics is to grab the next vine so you actually don't fall into the jungle, right? Yeah. That's the idea behind it. Explain to me what sort of disruptions you see in the next while in various industries that mirror the music industry and what people can do about it. Because again, I'm seeing, you know, doing a podcast like this, I'm seeing economics as, as, as a traditional career path. I think it's completely changed and I don't think it'll ever be like it was. Uh, John is a you know a former sound engineer. That's a business that has been totally yeah. and utterly disrupted by what we're talking about. Give me a sense of, of the next few years and why music is important to appreciate could be a template for what's going on. 
So let's stick with an obvious one for you to relate to, which is journalism. Yeah. Now, we've known that journalists have been holding on to the old Vine business model for the best part of two decades. And I have to say, they spent the first 10 years laughing at the music industry, saying, you're dead, you're dinosaurs, you're dying. And the second 10 years asking me to come to management offsites to explain how we did it. So it's like schadenfreude almost there. But yeah, they have a real problem on their hands. And I, I think every one of the eight principles in the book can be applied to their situation. Let's just do some basic observations. Basic observation, man in a pub, point one. Why do we even call them newspapers? It's a fair comment. Who wants to touch paper anymore? We touch pieces of glass instead. Point two, if you look at the physical distribution of newspapers, here in the UK, it's completely baffling. Like the Guardian might say, I want to distribute to left-leaning liberal cities like Edinburgh and Bristol and Brighton. You can't. You have to distribute to every city, and then you get your returns. How do you count newspaper popularity? You count how many come back to the factory, not how many do you send out. Very important measure of physical media. So the whole physical model is a mess, and the whole digital model is an equal mess. Websites for newspapers are horrible places to visit. It's easier to go to Google News to get the story that way. So if I look at what The Athletic is doing in sports uh, here in the UK, or Axios in America is doing with business and financial journalism, what you're seeing is the journalists themselves are becoming collectives. So let's get the best sports journalists we can find in Europe, form a collective, give them stock in the startup, which is very interesting. Yep. So you have incentives here as well. And we will prioritize sports journalism and say the sports journalism you get over here at The Athletic is way better than anything you're going to get from paying £4.60 for a newspaper. And by the way, if a Sunday newspaper costs just short of £5, The Athletic for three months is costing £1. So they're competing on price too. Now, I think there are some lessons there in terms of how newspapers can apply the book as an example of an industry which has been struggling with this for 20 years. And I think what COVID does is you'll come in number 13, your time is up. Now is the time that you're going to have to let go of that old vine and grab onto the new one, or the old vine is going to let go of you. Um, I just think the advancements in newspapers is just so fascinating. One, one final point, just bringing it from the macroeconomics down to the micro. It's so fascinating if we think about you know, that point I gave you about DIY artists. If I employed you as a newspaper company, and you'll say you're a high-profile journalist, which to all credit you have become, and I fired you because of uh, you know, bad behavior in office, you came in steaming drunk, been drinking the black sauce all night before, fired you, your career would have been over. Now you can jump over to Substack, monetize your own work far better, see more of that money, DIY artists again, and have more freedom to write what the hell you want. Yeah, What's so you, like so you, become, you become the sovereign individual, which is where we're actually, many of us are, are headed. And that's right. the only way you can be free in this world, is to Power be a sovereign. from the middle out to the edge. And I think the journalism is a really nice microcosm to apply here for everything else. But this is, you know, again, it's, it's, it's very, I find it very exciting because I've seen it in my own career over the years, various different certainties. Mm -hmm. smashing into new realities and, you know, ending up with, you know, pretty significant opportunities if you can just see them. Like most people get freaked out because we don't like change. We don't like insecurity, all that. I'm even looking at kids in Ireland and the, there's a thing we have in the, called the Leaving Cert and they have the point system, right? And the point system gives the preferences that kids are actually, in fact, maybe parents have at the age of 17. You should do this. And Careers like the law, for example, are still very high in the points. So it means that this is a status prestige career that kids are being funneled into. But what you're saying is that could be all gone quite soon. Well, I, I make a point in the early stages of the book, which is 
at least when I was at university, law, accountancy, and finance were the top three careers a graduate could go into. Today, they're not in the top three anymore. Software developers, engineers, UX designers, product managers, that's the goal of the top students, which raises an interesting question about where the brightest and best choose to work tomorrow. It really, really does. We can go into that lane if you want, but it's fascinating to think about, you know, go fishing where the fish are and, you know, what's happening in technology is really where you're seeing the brightest talent work and what's happening once they're in that technology space is to infiltrate every other sector of life. So okay. like I say, we have seen there's Silicon Valley startups today aiming to scale without a legal department. That's reality. That is amazing. That is amazing. And again, they'll just outsource that or they'll actually, it, it won't actually become an impediment, which means there's a hell of a lot of real estate in the center of Dublin is going to look very, very expensive very soon because all the big <laughs> lawyers have it now. And, and, and Edinburgh is a, is a city of lawyers. I mean, Edinburgh is a city of lawyers and bankers and financiers and the whole thing. Let- my, my, my mother is one of them. And you know, she's got a very, very famous agent, uh, client. Go on. J.K. Rowling. Oh, but your... nothing, nothing particularly special here is because of the disputed garden hedge, which has gone on for 12 years. So when I learned that she worked for J.K. Rowling, I was like, wow, mom, really? And it's like, yeah, because of this overgrown hedge that our neighbor has, this dispute. So big oh, client, that's... small issue, but a fucking big hedge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get back to the book, right? Tarzan Economics, mm-hmm. you're talking about traits, characteristics, lessons for people. Give me your, 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 your quick top five lessons for, for people listening. There's a lot of people listening to the show, being listening at work, or going into work, or are, are thinking of changing, are worried about these sort of changes in technology, changes in the background noise, insecurity. What do you say to them? Right. So I'll give you five, and I'll bullet them so we can go deep on which ones you prefer. So firstly, uh, I kick into the subject of attention. I refer to paying attention. Paying is an interesting word. I mean, we were using the English language here. You don't say pay in English in French, Spanish, or Swedish. You say offer, share, or give. We use currency language of paying. What I'd like the audience to grab there is a contestability of attention. I'm honored because I've been told that Vince Gilligan loves my book, and I have yet to watch Breaking Bad. So I'm busy giving Netflix three hours every night so I can catch up on Breaking Bad. So when I meet him, I can say, I loved your TV show too. <laughs> I don't look like an idiot. Um, Netflix wins my attention which means everyone else loses. So everyone else has got increasingly less time to compete for. That's contestability. We all like a drink. Is it gin and tonic, complementary forms of attention, or different brands of gin? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a bullet number one is really think about the scarcity and the contestability of attention as the first fork in the road you've got to navigate before you do anything. Either you have it or you don't. And if you don't, don't expect your financial PL to back it up either. So yeah. win attention, move to base two. Base two is drawing a crowd. I think that is really to appreciate that the gatekeepers, the judges, no longer win over the consumers anymore. From top-down marketing, like billboards and stuff like that, or Simon Cowell on the telly, that doesn't rub. Now we have bottom-up model where consumers essentially become the broadcasters. And we've seen this before. So if you think about how Facebook has now a market of social influencers, people from the bottom up who can influence their niche communities. And in the book, I talk about the story of Tupperware, which was essentially a bottom up form of marketing in 1948, how the viral spread of Tupperware parties made Brownie Wise, a single mother with one child, one of the richest businesswomen in the history of corporate America. Bottom up marketing, recognizing consumers as broadcasters is a new rule of drawing a crowd. Three, I'm going to hit on make or buy. We mentioned this earlier, but just 
we're always asking make or buy questions. This is a perennial question. And the principles I've given in the book are all perennial. Whatever happens to disruption, we will always be asking and dealing with these principles. And I was taught capitalism by a really great quote from Alan Blinder, Federal Reserve Governor, who'd be a great person to get on your show, actually. He said, capitalism is when you employ somebody else to cut your grass because you can do something more productive with your time. It's like a penny dropping moment of, yeah, I like cutting grass, but I could do something. That's capitalism. That's it working. I've just employed a gardener because I can make more revenues by doing something uh-huh. else. Not that I don't like cutting grass, but just there's a better allocation. So with all these creator tools that are available, there's going to be much more make and much less buy. So the role of the intermediaries are a bit like turkeys waiting for Christmas so they don't watch out. So if you're an intermediary that made a business of someone else's business. So if, you're, famous- so if you're a broker, if you're any sort of those sort of characters, you're you're threatened. Yeah. So I give you Peter Jenner, one of my mentors, uh, was the original manager of Pink Floyd. And on his business card, he said, my mission is your commission. If you're in that business, yeah. <laughs> you need to start reading. <laughs> okay. Um, number four. Four. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go in chronological order, then skip one or two. But in four, I would say the big thing there is self-interest versus a common good. And I'm going to pick up on this one because the chapter explores when do you act in your own self-interest? And when do you put your cards on the collaborative table and act in the common good, form a collective? And I introduced Marxism, not Karl Marxism, but Groucho Marxism. Excellent. Because Groucho Marx famously said, I'd never want to join a club that would have me as a member. What is he saying? I apply it to a subject that you have pioneered, which is the single European currency. All the people who joined the European currency were, I'm going to say, a sweeping generalization, skewed towards the low-performing European economies. The rich Scandinavian economies stayed out. That's Why? true. That's true. The Danes and the Swedes said, no, nah, not, not this time around. The Finns joined up. And the Norwegians, of course, are not part we'll of the game. We'll pick up on the Finns in a second. But they would never want to join a club that would have them as a member. What's in it for them? The bar is below. And what Groucho Marxism says is when you have a collective, the highest valued member has the least incentive to join and the greatest incentive to leave. Finland, as a strong Scandinavian company, did join, and they've been the most vocal opponents of the bailouts that you've seen in Greece and Italy over recent years. This is true. Just like Groucho Marx would have predicted. But I, I give you that because it's a timely example of you look at the European Super League, perfect example of that chapter playing out in real time. So not happy with what's happening in football just now, but I'm really happy to see the book crystallize in that you've got a bunch of Groucho Marxists there saying, why should I stay in this English premiership when there's a better collective I could form elsewhere? And for those listeners who are mathematically inclined, I've actually got a mathematical proof at the back of the book to show how to solve Groucho Marx, how to form collectives that can navigate disruption. Then in the last chapter of the book, so I'm going to hop, skip, jump a few here, but the last chapter is perfect for your audience. It's called Big Data, Big Mistakes. People drink the Kool-Aid on big data. At Spotify, we're producing a data dashboard one every minute, pretty much. And in the book industry, actually, my publisher asked me, what is a data dashboard? Is that something I'd find in my car? I'm like, no, it's something slightly different. But as an economist, what I started to question is, what am I missing with data? And I refer to quantification bias, how you skew your interest to what you can measure and disregard what you can't. Now, what you're disregarding is not irrelevant. In fact, it could be crucially relevant. But the fact you can't measure it means it didn't go into the formula. It didn't pop up on that dashboard. You couldn't say, look at this spike. I created that. And that whole chapter just peels apart that, the community drinkers and big data. But wasn't that, wasn't that the Einstein expression that, you know, not everything that is important can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts? Wasn't that his expression? 
that's a beautiful expression to apply to this one as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and then the quantification fallacy, the kind of four-step process of just realizing how much you disregard simply because it doesn't sit in your model. And if I take your Einstein quote, I think it was John Kay, another Scottish economist, he said, the fault of economics is when the consumer doesn't behave like your economic model, the economist blames the consumer for being wrong. I always love that example of, yeah, well, that's- you're not behaving like my Greek formula symbols here, and therefore you're, you're right. So listen, to conclude, right, you've been through the music industry, you've been through Spotify, you've now written this book, Tarzan Economics. Just people listening to this will say, you know, his career paths. I like that. It's kind of jumping around, doing his own thing, maybe staying ahead of the game, maybe falling behind the game. Any sense of a lesson of wisdom from that? Uh, It's interesting to think about where you want to go next and what's going to equip you for getting there. You know, is this this year's curriculum at university already out of date? This year's data tools that are teaching university not the ones that they're using inside tech companies today. Just how fast-paced disruption is and how slow we are to pick up on how to adapt to it and how to measure it. And I just really hope that what the book does is give people the tools, the confidences to work out where they are working, be it public sector, private sector, and what is that old vine that that, that organization is clinging on to and how they can work out how to let go and move forward. Because what I don't want to happen is the first 10 years of the music industry where we spent millions on litigation and lost billions in revenue. That's a bad ratio for anyone to follow. So how can we avoid the suffering and get straight to the recovering and be the goal of the book? And hopefully that's going to, that's going to, it's going to be a useful toolkit for many different professions. Well, Paige, listen, we will have you back in Kilkenny, but listen, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know, I just found him fascinating insofar as, you know, the whole music. But it's also in, your world as well. You yeah, know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. But when he was talking about Napster in 1999, which sparked off the whole streaming phenomenon, was that, you know, it was rejected totally by the record companies. And, yes. And, and they spent, as he was saying, 10 years, yeah. 10 years employing lawyers to sue customers yeah. for doing what customers wanted. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah. And, and, and now what he's saying, I mean, yeah, you, you, you lived through that. And I, I presume your career was affected by that. Oh, big time, yeah. Big because time. the honeypot that was the record companies disappeared for a time. And what, what actually happened as well was they, they started dropping all those. Remember back in the day, particularly in the 70s and 80s? Don't the, date me too much. Though. Come on. <laughs> Jesus. The usual, the, the norm was you'd sign a record deal and it'd be usually three albums. And the first album was bound to be good because it was all the songs that yes. you wrote. The second, it was always the difficult second album. Yeah. You know, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. always the tricky one. But the idea, and then the third album was you kind of grew into yourself. You had developed your brand, your sound and all that kind of stuff. And and that's the way it, it was. That was the old model. But now with streaming, the new model is you're kind of back to the way it was almost back in the 50s and 60s, where it wasn't album driven. It was singles driven or individual song driven. And it's not even individual song driven. It's individual first 20 or 30 seconds of song driven. So what you're finding is they're bringing their choruses forward in order to hook in the millennials who have no yes. patience. And he makes a great point yes, in the book. Yes, that's U2's Where the Streets Have No Name, right? Mm. One of U2's biggest singles. It takes over two minutes before you hear Bono's voice. And he makes the point that would never happen to millennials now. Millennials would never give the band two minutes of build and build yeah, and build yeah, and yeah. build and build. But what he's saying also, even quite... Distinct from the music industry, he's saying this disruption, technology is creating a massive disruption. Music came first. Journalism comes second. But he's saying banking is going to come third. The law is going to come fourth. He said anywhere where there's a legal, let's say a law firm, Mm. you won't need a law firm because you don't need that expertise because basically AI is going to create it for you. So the 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 way in which our world is changing, and he's saying is that anybody who works for an intermediary that stands between the consumer and the producer is going to have to figure out what they're going to do for a living because the consumer and the producer are going to come much, much closer together. Yeah. And I find that fascinating because if you think about the broad middle class in every Western country are actually middlemen and a technology this is kind of like the rentier economy. Yeah, it is. It is. But it's even it's even bigger than that. Like, you know, if technology is going to eradicate the middleman, you better be sure you're not the middleman. Mm. And then you think about so many professional services in the Western economy. So many services are the middleman. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. So in a way, the middle class is cannibalizing itself. And it doesn't figure, hasn't figured that out yet. That if you look at all, I mean, I remember when I was when I was in school, right? The rich people in our schools, dads, I remember this owned franchises for cars, right? Yeah. So 
their dads managed to stroke some sort of, managed to get some sort of gig that they would import, I don't know, Fiat's or something. Yeah, yeah. Not, not all the Fiat's, but in that area. So yeah. it was a classic middleman. There was the consumer who bought the Fiat Mirafiori. Yeah. And there was the Italian producer. And then there was this geezer in the middle, this Irish fellow who had a license, right? Yeah. Now that's all going to be obliterated. It's a bit like Tesla, because Tesla's doing that when you're talking about is it? cars. It is doing that. You know you that because you're paid so well. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm up to three Teslas now, I think. <laughs> but, if you know, that you go straight to Tesla to buy your, you go online, you you pick it all out. They don't have a showroom as such. And, and the car arrives. The car arrives in the post. It's flat packed. And you flat have to, packed, you just put it up. You <laughs> think you're Elon Musk. You say, I don't know how I'm going to space. I'm going to have a tunnel or I'm going to have a car. Yeah. And then you say, why have I got this screw left over? Exactly. <laughs> what, what, what could possibly go wrong? But his point, and I think it's really germane, is that the world that we were brought up in, the world that the next generation coming after us is brought up in, right? is being obliterated by technological change. And unless you figure out how to be this sovereign individual, mm. right, you're going to find a very... I was funny, I was laughing at him. You know, look, he's talking about if I'd been fired from a newspaper. Yeah. I was fired from News Talk, TV3, and RTE, <laughs> and the Irish Independent, and the Sunday Business it's Post. Full house. It's almost a royal flush of firing, right? <laughs> and we're still here. Isn't that mad? And you know... Every you can't time, keep a good thing down. You can't keep a good thing then, but you can't keep a good thing, full stop. <laughs> it's far too erratic. <laughs> but isn't it funny? Like you think about all this like journalism and TV presenting and radio presenting. It doesn't matter a shite, the platform, as so, long as you've got something to say. So are you saying then at the end of the day that we're going to kind of revert to a more production-led economy? Well, what I think is really clear from what he's saying and what I've, I've sensed all, all my life, all my career, is that the place that you end up, the company or radio station or whatever you're doing, right, mm. is actually immaterial because they are being disrupted all the time. Mm. And what you have to do as a person, as an individual, is become, I've, I've, I spoke about this quite a lot a few years back, this is my obsession with the sovereign individual. How do you become a sovereign person so that you're not dependent on anybody? You're not dependent on being, you know, having the stripes, being a member of a team, yeah. being, you know, part of that gang. And I think those sort of characteristics, the non-gang characteristics, the non-one-of-the-lads characteristics are going to become much, much more essential and much more valuable. And they are deeply personal. They have got very little to do with economics. They're actually the sort of individual you become or the sort of person you become. And I think that that sort of excessive disruption, you felt it in the early 90s mm. when your actual chosen career was disrupted by technology and therefore your wage was profoundly affected by the technology. Yeah. And you had to reinvent yourself and say, you know, what else am I going to do? That happened to me loads of times. The earlier it happens to you, the better. What I feel sorry for, not sorry for, but I have great sympathy for people who, for example, get to our age, John, and they've only had one job in one company and they've played the game and they've been a good corporate citizen, yeah. Yeah. they've been a good corporate man or woman, and then they get chopped because at our age, they're too expensive, they're too old, bits go wrong with them, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. 
I feel great sympathy for them because all the status that they had on the way up, and there's a lot of humans derive status from badges and brands, and I'm the chief of this and the global head of that. All that status that they had in their 30s and 40s and they really craved and they, they strive for and they achieved, for example, when that's taken away, those type of people are very naked and very exposed and very vulnerable. Whereas our lads like us, John, have been knocked around the place over the years. We're resilient. And the whole key to life is resilience. And that's what he's talking about. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon. Email in. I will answer your question. But more importantly, it's ad-free. Just you and me and your man across the way. Hey. Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And let's figure out the world together. Thank you.